Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 186. On today's show, we talk about the nocturnal urban landscape and lightscape of ancient cities with authors Nancy Gonlin and Megan Strong. Let's dig a little deeper into the darkness of your soul. (laughs) Maybe just the night. (laughs) Welcome to the show, everybody. Rachel, how's it going? Good. We are in the lovely state of Idaho this time. I think we were still in Montana last week, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, we were up in Glacier National Park and now we're in a different national park, Craters of the Moon, someplace I didn't even know existed before we booked yeah. this. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool place full of lava flows and old volcanoes and things. Super cool. And we're right in the campground too. And I'm interested to see because we're surrounded by like dark black basalt. I mean, like literally miles, eight square miles of dark yeah. black basalt and, and right in the campground too. And I'm interested to see with this being our first night here, what the sky is going to look like when the sun goes down, because there's, there's going to be no reflections from like the moon or anything like that. It's going to be totally dark. There's not even any lights that I can actually see from the campground around. And, and they're kind of known for their dark skies here. There's a whole bunch of stuff about it in the visitor center. And we didn't plan this, but that really does help us segue really well in talking about the night with our guests, Nancy Gonlin and Megan Strong. Nan and Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, thank you. All right, so just in case our our really avid listeners recognize the the name Nancy Gonlin, she did another book about the night, and we recorded that episode way back in February of 2018, and the book is called The Archaeology of the Night, and you had a different co-author on that one. I think it was April Noel. Yes, she was my co-editor on that volume, and Megan had a chapter in that book as well. Nice. Nice. There you go. So we're going to link to that in the show notes if you want to go listen to that episode about about the archaeology of the night. But this time around, we are going to talk about something a little bit different. This book is about, I'll just give you the subtitle, basically Nocturnal, Urban, Landscape, and Lightscape of Ancient Cities. And it's an edited volume, like you mentioned, with a bunch of different people contributing stuff to it. So why don't we start with you, Nan? Why right about the night again. It seems like you're a little bit night obsessed. What's going on? I am, definitely. (laughs) I've got this nocturnal gene. (laughs) I'm with you, Nan. I'm a night owl, so I'm very interested in this topic too. (laughs) Yes. So this is actually my third edited volume. The second Mm -hmm. one is called Night and Darkness in Ancient Mesoamerica, and that focuses only on Mexico and Central American countries and the people who have their ancestry there. And I 
was thinking about the night. This was some years ago. I'm sitting by the fireplace, drinking a glass of wine, and it occurred to me, I'm using different objects and different features, and I'm sitting in a different place in my house than I usually do. And what do archaeologists think about this? And I couldn't Mm -hmm. find anything. So Mm -hmm. the more I looked, the less I found. And thus, the archaeology of the night was born. And then the more I got into this topic, the more I realized that there are so many broad topics that are not being explored through the nocturnal lens. And one of them is urbanism, one of the major transformations for the human species. How about you, Megan? Mm -hmm. Well, I remember Nan telling me about this conversation uh, when I was, or that sort of (laughs) wine glass observation, I guess, by firelight. Um, For me, I like setting things on fire. (laughs) And so (laughs) my PhD research focused on ancient Egyptian lighting. And Mm. through that, I discovered a, a whole subdiscipline called lycnology, which is the study of ancient or pre-modern lighting devices. And so nice. I came at this topic as sort of how does lighting interact with darkened interior spaces, darkened urban environments, the built environment, the natural environment. And so Nan and I very quickly became intertwined in that way. Wait, ancient Egyptians didn't just use torches that were already on the wall that you could just light and then they worked for the whole time? That's what movies tell me. It's always just this thing that just works. Yeah, they're always immediately to hand. You can just sort of light them with a flick of a switch. Absolutely. And And, and mirrors also pop up a lot. Nice. Nice. That's what I figured. That's like one of Chris's pet peeves. He's always going on and on about how these very dark, very large spaces are lit by one torch in a movie. So this is this oh is God. a perfect conversation for him. Yeah. Yes. Or, yes. I want that or, torch, whatever that is. Right. 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 Or, or it doesn't seem like it's doing anything and they just lit the place poorly and it just like looks like it's lit from somewhere else, but they still have torches and flashlights. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we could go on about that forever. So <laughs> let's talk about the book specifically. So the, the topic of the book is, again, nocturnal urban landscape and lightscape of ancient cities. What, what drew you to, I, I guess talking about cities in this case? As I mentioned, one of the major transformations for the human species was moving into cities and creating cities and the urban atmosphere, the urban environment. You have a different kind of urban ecology, as John Januszek calls it in his chapter with Anna Gwengrich. And this urban ecology is unique. And as our discussant for our SAA symposium, upon which this book is based, Monica Smith Mm -hmm. says that urbanism has its own kind of darkness. It's a unique kind of darkness. And the more I thought about major human transformations, the more I thought that, well, we really need to explore this in a city environment. So that's what Mm -hmm. led me to this, because so many people research urbanism. So what else can we say about it? We can still say a whole lot about it. Yeah, it seems like when, you know, if you just look at some historical resources, it seems like when we started collecting in places more and more, you know, and then calling them cities that were out longer and were, were doing things into the dark rather than just going to sleep or sitting around the campfire, but then also security and safety are a lot of the lighting technologies and systems and things like that based around, I guess, just 
staying up late and being on the streets, but also, you know, not going to bed with the sun, but also um, safety and security? There's a whole mix in there. I think in terms of lighting, a number of authors in the volume come at it from different angles. Some of it is a matter of protection. So some authors talk about how lighting could help guard against evil, both in the human form from sort of war or other armies that might be coming to invade or evil in the supernatural sense. And there's, you know, then lighting that goes on to mark sort of specific times of year, specific secular or sacred celebrations. So it's not what we sort of tend to assume, I think, about the use of lighting, that it's not purely for the means of extending the day or to keep out evil things. It can be used for a whole host of reasons. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, because I guess when you look outside of what we think of, you know, is like Roman cities or something like that. And you start looking at places like Mesoamerica and other places. I wonder how the fascination with sort of lighting up the darkness took hold as, you know, I mean, going way back to just fire, right? Just just being able to control the darkness, so to speak, with your own light that you could make. But then also, I guess, also figuring out ways to to just manage that and, and ways to live with it and ways to live without it, you know? Yeah, it's. I think what I'm interested in is the, the at least that came out in the volume is that all these different cultures that you know we are touched on throughout the the volume are authors showing that it's not you know one size fits all that you know different groups of people come at the use of lighting in different ways and that of course an element of that is you know creating lighting so that perhaps you can light up your home you can extend the hours of the day you might be able to sort of see a little bit better for certain activities as an example. But then that also has a number of knock-on effects. That can be a symbol of power or status, can be a symbol of different sort of socioeconomic breakdowns. So you can take that one use of lighting and actually apply it to a number of different sort of levels in in society and urbanism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed that sort of come through in the different chapters. If you think about urbanism and inequality, the first thing that comes to mind would not be lighting. And to follow up with what Megan is saying, there are all different kinds of lighting devices and sources of fuel. And some of those sources were quite regulated and rare. And if you think about how people wanted to light up the night or had a necessity to do so, well, how does this figure into their household economy? So that's a different aspect Hmm. that some of the authors looked at as well. Yeah, I was wondering, that's one of the questions that we that we had from you guys actually to ask about nocturnal household archaeology. And I'm really curious about that. What what did some of them say about that? Well, if you look at The remains of households, which are houses and the objects in them, the people themselves and the areas around their houses, these are reflections of quotidian practices. And you find objects, for example, a pottery bowl, which is ubiquitous remain. And some of them, though, have burn marks on their interiors. So what were they used for and when? It may have been used to light up the dark as at Copan, Honduras, which is a classic Maya site where I have worked, or at Teotihuacan in Mexico, a classic period Central Mexican site, or Tiwanaku, Bolivia, as relayed by Janusek and Gwengrich in their chapter. So we're looking at the household, but we're looking at the remains through a nocturnal 
perspective. And one question that I often get is, well, how do you know that was used at night? And I say, <laughs> how do you know that was used during the day? <laughs> right. We don't question that something was used during the day. We assume that's our default. So we need to turn that around and think about material evidence from a different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And to the, the absence of evidence is, you know, the absence of a practice. I think of, you know, places particularly in in North Africa and the area of the Middle East today, in their ancient pasts, they used all kinds of different lighting devices that may not even survive in the archaeological record. So this is something that is another problem that, you know, archaeologists have, I think, assumed that perhaps, you know, lighting wasn't used or it wasn't as prevalent or it wasn't as important simply because those objects don't survive in the material record. Mm -hmm. And yet that almost certainly wasn't the case. Yes. And the more you use a light, say, for example, a torch, the less you have of it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's kind of a feature of that, right? And when you guys are talking about, you know, assuming something's used during the day, right, versus for the night, how do you know? It, it really goes back to that age-old problem of archaeologists assuming men and women did certain things when, you know, in reality, there's not a lot of evidence for some things. It's just made, we make the assumption, you know, that men must have done this and women must have done that, but it was probably a lot more fluid. Well, I and Chris, you know this, but I have always been very obsessed with the like missing majority idea of archaeology, because I think that there is so much that we can't know because we just don't have the archaeological remains anymore. They're just gone. So I am curious, though, the remains that you do have when you find them in a in a household, is there a way that you can tell if the light source was being used for daily just stuff that had to happen at night or if it had more of a like ritual or spiritual significance perhaps i'm just curious if you can use the artifacts to kind of assign what they were doing with that light basically context would be everything yeah Mm -hmm. so it's not just the objects but the context in which they are found and megan might have more to say about this uh she has written an entire book about Mm. the ancient lighting devices in ancient Egypt. Mm. Nice. I mean, this is an issue that I definitely wrestled with when I was first doing the research for that, is that many, many archaeologists who have come before us, at least specifically writing about Egypt or sort of that northeast corner of, of Africa, have sort of assumed that because they weren't really finding many things that stuck out to them as a lamp, that therefore mm-hmm. Egyptians must not have used lamps. <laughs> but I think it, that seems a little bit far-fetched. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they do have evidence for fires, for example, that they would have been using more in sort of like cooking contexts or sort of communal fires. But context, absolutely. You do find lamps, particularly in, in burials included as mortuary goods. Mm. You find them within a domestic context. You can find lighting, but sort of almost always in the context of small shrines to ancestors or to gods, as opposed to in Greece and Rome, for example, you find oil lamps scattered all over the place in every kind of archaeological context. 
Hmm. And so that mm-hmm. can help if you can draw comparisons of where are you finding lighting in certain venues, et cetera. That's as best as you can get, I think. Well, mm-hmm. also art can contribute to our understanding of what lighting devices were used in what context. And Megan, what comes to mind is that lamp that was entombed with King Tutankhamun. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there there were a few lamps in there. And, you know, in terms of, of an art context, you know, we we sort of bounce those terms around. Is it an, an archaeological object or is it a, a piece of art because it's so beautifully mm-hmm. sculpted? And that's another problem is that archaeologists will look at something that is you know, so beautifully made and so finely crafted. The lamps in his tomb were made of this beautiful sort of translucent calcite. And you would look at it and go, oh, there's no way you would pour an animal fat in that and set it on fire. <laughs> and yet, when I you bet you do, would. <laughs> oh, yes, I would. <laughs> 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 thrown out of the Egyptian museum. No, that's okay. <laughs> but when you do set that particular lamp that, that Nana's referencing on fire, you can actually see that there's a painted scene on the inside of it as well. And that is only oh. visible if you illuminate it from the inside. So sometimes you do also get little bonus clues like that that can kind of point you in the direction of something being used for a particular purpose. I'm thinking of the Maya Vase database, if any of you are familiar with that website. And there are tons of rollout depictions of classic Maya vases. And on those, a lot of times you will see featured a torch. A torch is in a palace scene as the ruler is sitting on the bench and he has an attendant holding a large torch. So that gives us some idea of what context torches were used. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. As well as caves. Yeah, absolutely. I think with that, we'll go ahead and take our first break and then we'll come back on the other side and keep talking about the archaeology of the night back in a minute. Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Keep this conversation going by joining our members only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year if you get the annual subscription. Support archaeological education and outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. 
terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 186. And we're talking with Nancy Gonlin and Megan Strong about the archaeology of the night. And you can find the link to their latest edited volume in the show notes and the subtitle and the actual proper title of the whole book and everything like that. So you can find all that in the show notes. Just look down at your device and it's right there. And we're also including some other links that are mentioned because I need to look up this Maya Vase database. I wrote that down. I need yeah, to see Yeah, totally. That sounds really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second book in the series, which, you know, Nan conveniently forgot to tell us existed and then didn't have a podcast <laughs> about. So now we're going to have to talk right? about that one too at some point. <laughs> I'm so modest. What can I say? <laughs> Nice, nice. All right, so I'm, I'm just curious. We've talked about a few of the, you know, different things that are talked about in the book, but, you know, without like naming a favorite, of course, you know, like like naming your favorite child or something like that. What are some of the the really big highlights that you think are, you know, good takeaways from this book? Some of the some of the real some of the real things that stick out in your mind. For me, it has to do with focus on urbanism from a different viewpoint. I. Even though Megan and I edited this book, I hadn't actually read it until this weekend. Nice. <laughs> and my, well, it's different editing than reading, sure. right? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So what I found was that this is such a cultural universal that people have to face the night, but they do it in so many extraordinary and just super interesting ways. I was impressed with the material evidence that our authors came up with and how they presented it because it is a new topic and sometimes Megan and I really had to twist people's arms to participate because many archaeologists don't get it but <laughs> yeah. these archaeologists who contributed to the volume were incredible so I learned a lot about urbanism and I learned a lot about how people face the night in the past. Mm -hmm. Megan, what are some of your, your highlights and takeaways? I I have to agree with with Nan that going through and, and reading it, there had I had so many moments of, oh wow, that's so cool. I'm gonna have to think about that for the next time I'm working on, you know, whatever. <laughs> But I think what I really enjoyed, and I, Nan, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't remember specifically asking the authors to consider the built environment and the natural environment when they were talking about urbanism and their respective areas of expertise. And yet they all sort of by default did that. Hmm. Am, I, am I wrong, man? Did we ask them to do that? <laughs> well, I did bring up infrastructure in terms of approaching the urban environment and the built environment. But I did not, and neither did you, give them much direction or guidelines or instructions to do so. So whatever they came up with was kind of on their own. Yeah, I, I think that's what I found so sort of in the front of my mind was that everyone in their own way sort of talked about, was there an element of weather 
and did that play off of the experience of the night and how that impacted on the built environment or did the placement of a particular building or the angle of a particular roadway, did that enhance an element of the nocturnal landscape a particular person would have been navigating? Mm -hmm. So I think for me, those were one of the, the sort of interweaving points that I really enjoyed that all these different cultures globally around the world, to Nan's point of, you know, how they all kind of came at things in their own ways and that night is a universal, but it's very differently culturally constructed, but that they also are making the use of both a built environment and a natural environment within whatever urban space that they're creating. Hmm. And, you know, this kind of reminds me, too, we mentioned, you know, our, our audience definitely knows, but, you know, Rachel and I live in an RV. So we do a lot of driving because we're, we're never in one place for more than a week, maybe two weeks, sometimes a little longer. And we do a lot of driving. So listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks. And, and recently, not even preparing for this show, well before, you know, this book came into my knowledge, just like a month and a half ago, I listened to Brian Fagan's What We Did in Bed, A Horizontal History. And <laughs> oh, I love that book. It was great. Yeah, it was written, I think it was 2019. At least that's the year I'm seeing here. I don't know if that, that was originally published. But, you know, we're talking about lighting systems in this in this podcast, but also just like the lighting systems help to... I guess, enhance and illuminate the things that we are doing at night. And they're intricately tied to that. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's, it's crazy how all this just, all this fits together. And you can't really just study one tiny little thing or look at one artifact or look at one culture, even for that matter, and think you know all the answers. Mm -hmm. Oh, I never think I know all the answers. <laughs> People think we do, though, as archaeologists. So I know, right? Yeah. So. No, no, that's the fun of archaeology is we don't know all the answers. Exactly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. So we, we discussed the other book briefly, Night and Darkness in Ancient Mesoamerica. And you call this the Ancient Nights Trilogy. Does that mean you're done writing about the night, Nan, as far as edited volumes go? Or, or what's, what's in store? I... Actually, I'm thinking of another one. <laughs> so it's it would be on the nocturnal household archaeology. Okay. Household archaeology is my specialty within archaeology. And it's a matter of getting enough people on board to come up with a symposium. Mm -hmm. And that's where each of these volumes came from. And I have such a supportive group of people who work at the University Press of Colorado that I'm sure if I proposed another book that they would go for it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Megan, what are you doing in terms of nocturnal household archaeology? Can I, can I interest you? <laughs> That's awesome. Nice. What about you, Megan? Where are your research interests taking you these days around this topic? I know you mentioned Egypt, but I I guess more specifically. Yeah, so I'm um, a bit of an oddball in the archaeological world and that I'm also sort of equal parts art historian as well. Okay. And so for me, some of the work that I'm doing, I work at a, a site in Sudan and Nori in northern Sudan and it is this vast necropolis that was used for uh, the rulers of the, the kingdom of Kush. Mm-hmm. 
And there is a, a painted tomb there that I've been doing some research on, on the pigments. We don't understand what pigments were being used really in that area. We have a, a whole encyclopedia of knowledge about ancient Egyptian paintings and, and painting technology, less so for the sort of southern neighbors in, in ancient Nubia. Okay. And so for me, I'm kind of going into the direction of how does lighting impact on painted surfaces? and particularly how that might affect the production of pigments, the choice in pigments. It's something I was able to get into a little bit in, in my book, but I'd really like to sort of push that angle a little bit further and see where I can go. And maybe seeing in household archaeology mm-hmm. where paintings are applied <laughs> on walls and how that works with lighting. How does that sound, man? Does that work? Okay, that works. You're in. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. We always ask our, our guests to send us over questions because they know the, the topics better than we do, of course. And, and one of the things you guys sent us that we haven't talked about yet necessarily or specifically, I should say, is the difference, some of the major differences between ancient and modern city nights. I think just without even thinking about it, one might think, well, in ancient times, it was just dark with maybe a campfire and modern city lights. People think New York City, they think Hong Kong, you know, they think always lit up and bright. But what are what are some of your guys' thoughts around that? One thing is that I think today that darkness seems unnatural mm-hmm. to most modern people. And that's a point our discussant Monica Smith makes. We're not used to it. If the lights go out, it is terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. We're not used to an electrical outage. And when you don't see the stars and you don't see the Milky Way or the moon, you don't really know how bright they are. Now, nights in the past were not completely dark because of the campfires and people knew how to put starlight and moonlight to greatest effect. Mm -hmm. But our modern nights have taken this lighting to a whole different degree, so much so that we are harming the all, all species, including ourselves. And modern people also work through the night. They think that's normal. Mm-hmm. And granted, there was a night shift in the past, but not to the extent that it is today. And some people don't have a choice in terms of their work. And oftentimes, it's a matter of inequality. Who has to work at night and who right. does not, both in the past and the present? Mm-hmm. Right. I'm very aware of that. I have some clients in Europe and I have meetings five nights a week from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, what, what about you, Megan? What, what are your takeaways on that? I think to your point to sort of give a different perspective from from what Nan just said, that, you know, we think of the bright lights of New York City and this incredible amount of activity that that we have in in the evenings and that we sort of assume that everybody in the past, you know, the sun goes down and everybody just immediately falls into this comatose sleep for however many hours until the sun comes up and okay, and then everybody goes back to doing, you know, their various activities And I think one of the things that surprises me about some of the chapters that were, you know, included in the volume is that things were incredibly busy at night. Mm. There were a lot of particularly important activities, you know, sacred events, whole processions, festivals, you name it, that took place in the evenings and that have a lot of similarity to, to our modern practices that you have 
you know, music festivals that go on at night. And they had similar mm -hmm. ideas in the ancient worlds that you have, you know, certain cultural events that make the most of a nighttime atmosphere. It was the same in the ancient past. So I think it's a good reminder that we, we are the same people <laughs> that we have always been, I think, from, from the ancient times until today. Indeed. I just, I love both of your comments so much. And it, it made me think about some of the choices that Chris and I have actually made with where we go from a camping perspective. You know, we live in our RV, but we've done a lot of camping over the years. And Chris, I don't know if you remember this time, but it just sticks out to me so much. We were camping at the Black Rock Desert at Trago Hot Springs outside of Reno. Mm -hmm. And it was a full moon. And I just remember being completely just almost overwhelmed by how bright and amazing it was outside with this full moon out on the desert. We didn't need any light. It, it was just amazing. I don't even need, think we needed to have a campfire that night. It was so bright. And yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it was so cool. And if you think about it, of course, ancient people, ancient cultures would have known about that amazing <laughs> full moonlight. And they probably it was probably part of a lot of the different rituals and things that they they did at those times of the month. So I'm just curious, have you encountered that in the archaeological record? Basically, evidence of people doing things because there was a full moon or there was there was light at night that they could take advantage of natural light. One chapter written by Kristen Landell, Christopher Hernandez and myself focuses on lunar power of ancient Maya kings. Mm. And this was really based on Kristen Landau's honors thesis when she worked with Dr. Anthony Avini at Colgate University. And it's statistically significant that Maya, classic Maya rulers, would accede to the throne when there was either a full moon mm. or a new moon. Mm. And then this chapter goes on to say that there are auspicious times for planting and harvesting. And we have that in our own culture. I don't know if you're familiar with the farmer's almanac. Yeah. yeah uh huh. But if you look through there, there are certain times that one should plant certain kinds of species and other times when one should not. Mm. And a lot of this revolves around the moon. The moon has power, but if you can't see the moon and you can't see the stars, <laughs> it's easy to ignore that. Right, right. Yeah, that's really interesting, the way, the way that all works. It also depends on, I would assume, thinking about Rachel's example versus where we're at right now. It's unfortunate that here at Craters of the Moon National Park, we're not going to have a full moon here because I'd like to see how the full moon plays with the landscape because out in that area that we were at in the Black Rock Desert, by the way, not very far from where they hold Burning Man every year, which is a ritual in its own True. right. But uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, <laughs> the, the desert is practically white, right? Like, like during yeah. the daytime, it, it, you almost can't even look at the desert floor because it's so bright. And when the moon is full and shining and reflecting off of that surface, I mean, it's it's otherworldly almost. It really is. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering, just as we're wrapping up this segment, can you see or have you guys looked at with the individual, I guess, cultures that you've studied, a shift from sort of light being light, like lighting up the night specifically, but light being more of a, a novelty and shifting to more of a necessity? You know, like you mentioned, Nan, you know, we're, we're not used to the darkness now. When did that happen? You know what I mean? Like, when did that when did that become a dependency versus 
you know, a novelty. I, I just think of like settlers and things like that being okay with being in the dark if they're, you know, they have candles and things like that, but it's not really that big a deal if the candles go out, right? Yeah, we'll just go to bed early, you know, that kind of thing. But now it's like we go into freak out mode and where is the <laughs> flashlights and who has the batteries, <laughs> you know? Like, can we see? I know, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, when did that shift happen? Can you see that in any cultures? Hmm. Not in the ancient ones that are in this particular volume. Mm -hmm. And I would think that with the advent of electricity is when people ah. started to have a real shift. That's a good point. And keep in mind that there, there are some people in the world who still do not have electricity. Sure. So it is a privilege to have that kind of power, that kind of lighting. But I would connect it to when electrical lights became more prominent and desirable. Not everybody likes electricity and we can't live without it though. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder if that would cause a, a different problem in this, in today's world where, like you said, you do have people and cultures that just simply don't have electricity when they do see electrified light. Is there, is there a fear of it, you know, or is it just like, you know, when somebody gets a candy bar, like I'm going to take it cause it's sweet and I love it. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a candy bar for us? I wish I had a candy bar right now. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just wondering how people that, like you said, don't live with, don't live with that all the time. Is there, is there kind of a fear of electricity, I guess, in particular, but more electrified light than, you know, we maybe had in the past? I can think of an interesting example. This is very anecdotal from living in Egypt for a number of years, but a place where to Nan's point, electricity is not always very prevalent, particularly in the more rural areas of Egypt. It can be really difficult to come by, you know, sustained electricity mm. for long periods of time. So they really try to concentrate it in, in homes, in shops. Sure. And so street lighting, particularly way out in the countryside, is almost non-existent. Yeah. And I can clearly remember driving down, the, you know, the country road that we lived off of and the drivers constantly turning their headlights off. Mm. And this terrified my husband and I who were living there at the time because we figured we're going to fall into a canal. We're going to drive into a donkey. We're going to hit someone. And they preferred to navigate to your point, um, Rachel, by the moon wow. because they were able to see better and they felt it was safer if they kept the headlights off mm. and only used them in sort of extreme situations to maybe flash at another car that's coming or something like that. Otherwise they would drive with them off because they didn't like it. Wow. That's crazy. That's that That's such an, a yeah. unique like cultural thing to experience. Right. Yeah. I've had that experience in India as well. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Okay. It doesn't, it, Nan, did you want to jump out of the car as well and be like, this is not a good idea. We have headlights. We can use them. But they, they drive so well without them. It astounds me. I would have jumped out, but it was too dark for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right, well. We are going to wrap this up. Rachel and I are going to come back in segment three and kind of do a wrap up of the episode on our own. But I want to thank Nancy Gonlin and Megan Strong for coming on to talk about their latest edited volume, After Dark, The Nocturnal Urban Landscape and Lightscape of Ancient Cities published by University Press of Colorado. And we will link to that in the show notes, plus the other books in this 
a so far trilogy, although that sounds like it might be changing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't know what number Perhaps. you're going to stop at, <laughs> but you know, we'll, we'll link to all those sources and then anything else that we talked about in this show. And again, I want to thank you, Nan and Megan, for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. I am just delighted to share my work with you. And I am just flattered that you would highlight our book. Yeah, we can't wait to hear what your your experience is like this evening with your your beautiful dark skies. I know. Right? We, we might actually have to record segment three tomorrow after we experience the dark skies so we can comment on that. Oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we will go to break real quick. And then Rachel and I will come back 24 hours later, yet only about two minutes later. So we'll see you guys on the other (laughs) side of the break. Back in a minute or 24 hours. (laughs) Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to episode 186, final segment. And Rachel and I are just going to wrap up this discussion a little bit. But, you know, in the world of podcasting... It's a few days since we recorded this. Yes. And we've actually moved locations to a few states over. Yep. Well, one state over. Oh, yeah. One state over. I yeah. don't know where we were when we recorded this. <laughs> we were at the Critters of the Moon National Park. Oh, that's right. In Idaho. Yep. And now we're in Nevada. We're actually on our way to Reno, which is where yeah. we originally started traveling from like two years ago. So we're going to be spending some time mm-hmm. in Reno for the month of September. Yeah. But the cool thing is, Craters of the Moon was... You know, talking about dark sky, and I remember doing the interview. We were talking about you know seeing the night sky, and mm-hmm. and I did go out a few times because I have my meetings that I do with my European clients from mm-hmm. eleven to one a.m. Mm-hmm. When you come out of a meeting at one a.m., you're kind of wired a little bit, despite yeah. the fact that it's one a.m. You so need it, like a half an hour wind down at yeah. least, right? <laughs> so I stepped outside a few times, take a look at all the stars, and it yeah. is just you know something that reminds me that. Nancy and Megan were right. It, it is like we went from this familiarity with the night sky to mm-hmm. like a fear of the night. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like the only way you can have light at night is if you artificially produce it using electricity, really. Or fires. Or fire. Yeah. So 
the fact that you get so much light from just the night sky itself is amazing. Mm -hmm. Where we were, the moon wasn't even rising until like 2 a.m. or something, right? So that was just light from the stars, really, that you Mm -hmm. were seeing, not even from the moon. So it's it's an undervalued part of the night, I think, by modern humans. Yeah, and just like... You know, people who have lost the sense of sight or something like that, sense of sight. It is a sense, but have lost sight. Yeah. Right. And especially people who I feel like were, you know, sighted their whole lives Mm -hmm. and then something happened and Mm -hmm. then they lose that sight. It's different for people who I think were born blind because they they never had it. So they learned something new entirely. But somebody who did have the ability to see and then loses the ability to see is like turning off the lights Mm -hmm. and you have to relearn your environment, but you learn to process sounds and you learn to process things in different ways that allow you to be more familiar with it. Mm Because like you said, you know, in a, in a perfectly dark sky with no moon, the, the light from the stars is, is a lot. And if you get acclimated to it and more importantly, you already know what your surroundings look like and Mm -hmm. you know where things are, then it's not as worrisome. But I think one of the things we were talking about on our driving, (laughs) like light is an invention, right? Mm -hmm. So anytime you get an invention, you get new technologies and new ways and new capabilities of doing things. When the people were able to consistently produce fire Mm -hmm. and keep a fire burning all night and everybody sleep around the campfire, they would be able to be in areas that maybe weren't as safe for them beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like areas where there's lots of lions and things like that. They might be kept away by the fire. Right, totally. I was listening to this podcast on the way here, this RVing one, and this guy was, they call it cowboy camping when you just like roll your sleeping bag out on the ground. Mm -hmm. You have no tent or anything. But he sort of was, he was half asleep and he was sort of hear this, heard this rustling and then he felt something on his, like on his head. Oh no. And he woke up and a black bear had his head (gasps) in its jaws. But it was just kind of like messing like, with him because like he didn't gumming around. Yeah, like, yeah, because he didn't know what he was. Yeah, right. It just oh smelled God. something like That's food. Terrifying. They say they say it could have been his toothpaste because they have yeah. a really huge sense of smell. But his scream yeah. like scared the bear off. But it's its teeth like scraped him and he still had to have like 16 stitches. But, oh my God. But he clearly didn't have a fire going or something like that because a yeah. bear would have been, you know, warded off by the fire. Right, um, totally. But it just makes me wonder, you know, how, how our lives change when we were able to consistently make that light at night. Well, I think consistency is the key word there because yes, the sky, the moon, the stars is going to produce a lot of natural light, but it is not consistent. It's different in different times of the month, different phases of the moon. Right. It's, if it's cloudy... <laughs> Because a couple of those days in Idaho, it was cloudy when we were like Mm -hmm. looking up at the night sky. We really couldn't see anything. It was just pitch dark out. So I think electricity brought that level of consistency. And so the natural light is just a different type of light and it's not consistent. And Mm -hmm. electricity gives us that consistency. Yeah. So the other thing that I was so interested in that we learned about a little bit from Nancy and Megan is how class might have played a role in light and light sources and who had access to the light and how they were using it. That was one of the most interesting parts to me because I never even thought about it, but light is a resource, right? Mm -hmm. It's a resource that was probably controlled by people with money. And when you see like a super elaborate lamp, like the one that Megan was talking about in King Tut's tomb, Tomb. then, you know, maybe it was used for light and maybe it wasn't, but either way, something that artistic and that beautiful, it's an example of a resource that not everybody had, had access to. Well, and still to today, I mean, light's not free. That's true. Yeah. You know, you, you either have to buy solar panels and light bulbs from somebody. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's 
free-ish, mm-hmm. but initially there's a cost. And, there's always a cost, And yeah. to flip on any light switch in any building, somebody's paying for that. Mm-hmm. You know? And when you look at the socioeconomic differences in urban populations even, like there are plenty of people who can't afford to pay their electric yeah. bill and then they are in the dark effectively at night. So now there's public spaces that you can go to and use the light for free. So like I guess mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a silver lining there. But, but it makes me wonder if, you know, the people who are having a difficult time paying an electricity bill, for example, have a less of a dependency on the light and, and more of a more of an acceptance of darkness. Yeah. And I don't know if that's why my parents always prefer to like watch TV in absolute darkness in the <laughs> evening or if that's just like a generational thing. I don't know. I think but, that might be a generational thing. <laughs> yeah. I think like watching TV is like an experience when you're from the generation that maybe didn't grow up with TV it's all the color. time. It's the movies. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, it's the movies. We have to be yeah. in total darkness. Well, I knit, so I can't be in total darkness. I know. So I, I beat that out of you if you well, ever did want it that way when we first got together. I mean, I grew <laughs> that way and I never did really like it yeah you know like I do prefer to have some not not like all the lights on but Mm -hmm. some light on but then it makes me think of people that go the other direction and you know you drive through like a like a really fancy neighborhood Mm -hmm. like you know leading to where your family lives there's some like really fancy neighborhoods on the way to their neighborhood Uh yeah and sometimes just like every light in the house it's is on. on. That's like a 5,000 yeah. square foot house and the whole thing's lit up like a yeah. space station. Well, and that speaks to the whole light pollution problem a yeah. little bit, right? I mean, light pollution is a thing and we experience it here in the RV because sometimes we're in a campground like we are right now where mm-hmm. we might be the only ones who have power well into the night because we have yeah. solar and batteries. And I feel like we have to be very careful about keeping our shades down and not being obnoxious with our light pollution because yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. you know it's so dark here and we're going to be lighting up the whole campground if we leave a shade open and the light is like blaring out of the rv so well, and i really noticed that at craters and at yeah. uh, glacier national park because we were surrounded by tenters well we were and the the little window that's kind of in our kitchen area behind our sink it's got, it doesn't have a blackout shade like every other window does. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we just kind of leave that open because it's little blinds yeah. and we don't think about closing it. Yeah. And even if when it is closed, it's not blackout like the other ones right, are. Like right. the other ones literally don't let any light out. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. And it's really good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I really thought about that because I remember stepping outside one time and there was just, like, just like a huge like ray of light <laughs> coming from the LED that's over that light. Yeah. So, oh, it makes me feel so bad. Yeah. yeah. But it is interesting to think about though from an archaeological perspective because the sites that we are recording today as we are finding them we're recording them with modern light mm-hmm. and modern light sources i mean yeah it's typically done during the day but you could go into the night if you wanted to and yeah. you can't see these sites at night the way that the people who originally occupied them would have seen them mm-hmm. so like i think nancy and megan touched on this a little bit but you really do have to try to put yourself into the perspective of the people who live there to understand what life was like for them at night and you it's a lot of best guess kind of scenario like archaeology is mm-hmm. a lot of the time but it is interesting to think about like how people who lived in this this city or this place how the night was for them. <laughs> it's hard. Well, it makes me think of sites in, say, you know, Nevada, where we've got a lot of experience in any of the, uh, especially northern Nevada and any of the northern states and up into Canada. Mm-hmm. They had 
what's called a seasonal round, of course, right? Where they have summer sites, they have spring sites, they have winter mm-hmm. sites. They're really following game, but, yeah. you know, they're following game, but they're also like following the weather. Like nobody wants to be at a high altitude site in the wintertime. Right. There's nothing to do. You could just like, you'll get stocked in. Yeah, Right. Totally. You'll probably die. So, I mean, even if you stockpile stuff, it's just like not going to be pleasant. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in Nevada, down in the valleys, I wouldn't say it's a picnic in the wintertime. No, I right? mean, it's still pretty chilly. Yeah, yeah for so, sure. So they, they had these areas that they would typically go, the Native Americans did, but it makes you think like you really have to, if you find a habitation site and you think you've got maybe a winter site versus a summer site, mm-hmm. I would think that, you know, in the wintertime in Northern Nevada, you know, in the dead of winter, you've got like eight, nine hours of daylight. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of activities that took place in the dark. Yeah. A lot of activities. Yep. And is some of the layout of the site, is some of the layout of the hearths and, and campfires mm-hmm. and, and potentially teepee rings and, and whatever else you have as far as the habitation goes, is some of that laid out around, you know, efficiency and getting around and maybe protection at night versus in the daytime when they might not need that much or you can just kind of lay it up any way you want, Mm -hmm. right? But I imagine they would have done that just like naturally, even in a summertime site. Yeah, like light is required to do things at night after yeah. dark. I mean, yeah. yes, moon and stars and all that, like we talked about, but it does only go so far. And if you do have a light source, then I would imagine that if you want to be doing some kind of activity at night, you would make sure and arrange your camp or your city or your whatever in such a way that the most people could take advantage of that, that light mm-hmm. source, I would guess. So, yeah. Okay. The other thing that was really interesting to me from this conversation is about sacred and ritual use of light versus like household lighting. Well, you said ritual. Somebody's got to take a drink. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but like how you tell the difference between those. And of course, context is the most important. Like mm-hmm. I think both Nancy and Megan said, but the idea of chasing down the reason for why people were lighting something is so interesting to me. And one way might be if it appears to have been used during the day and at night, then maybe mm-hmm. it's not necessarily just for lighting because why, why are you going to use light during the day unless it's for some other significance besides illuminating a space? Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Lots to think about. Yep. Lots, to, lots to look at. Lots to think about when you just look at your own spaces and how you would, you know, if you lose power. How do you handle it? How do you get around? <laughs> how do you, yeah, how do, how do you handle it? Yeah. What, if, what would you do if you lost power? If you lost power for like an evening, oh, maybe you just go to bed early, mm-hmm. look at, you know, read some news on your iPad or something if it's connected to cell networks, but maybe cell networks are down maybe too. Maybe they are, yeah. But what do you do after five, six, seven, eight days and of there's like still no power. no power? Yeah. You know, what do you start doing then? How do you adjust your own acceptance of the dark and when the sun goes down and you know you're mm-hmm. you're you're managing candles now mm-hmm. because you don't just want to burn candles all night um yeah. but you are going to have to burn candles you're buying all kinds of batteries for lights and lanterns and things yeah. like that and you know how does that change your awake activities yeah. you know if you know that it, maybe because of your work you normally sleep until you know eight o'clock in the morning or something but it's summertime and the sun's up at five thirty. Yeah. I mean you're up at five thirty now because why not? You have to do stuff during the day. Yeah, maybe. So, it'd be interesting to see. There's probably some anthropological studies from the last like 20 mm-hmm. years of people who've experienced a disaster who have knocked out power for yeah. a long amount of time. I'm thinking like Katrina right. or there was that hurricane that hit New York City. I think mm-hmm. they they were only out of power. Like Hurricane Sandy, I think, right? Well, they were only yeah. out, of, out of power for like a couple of days maybe. But still, I just wonder how people's habits might have changed based on the fact that they just had no access to electricity. It's crazy. What about the worst natural disaster 
in the history of the United States, the hurricane that took out your sixth birthday party. <laughs> um, hurricane Hugo, which <laughs> hit the city of Charlotte in 1989, also known as my sixth birthday, September 21st, well, 20th, the night of the 20th. I feel like I bring this up more than you do at this point. <laughs> I don't know. I used to talk about it like a lot. It was a very like defining moment of my childhood. Nice. We had to cancel my birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. It was, or actually showbiz back then. It was... It was a day. Wow. It was an upsetting wow. day. Wow. <laughs> Lots of people without power, without light. But I couldn't have my birthday party. Young Rachel's birthday party. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were out of power for like a week. That's why the party was canceled because it yeah. was the following weekend. I'm gotcha. just saying. Okay. I think if my mom ever See? listens to this, maybe she can correct me. I could be totally wrong. These <laughs> these memories are what, like 30 some years old at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, definitely check out the links in the show notes. The book is called After Dark, The Nocturnal Urban Landscape and Lightscape of Ancient Cities. And by, again, Nancy Gonlin and Megan Strong. And I would encourage you to write the authors and tell them, maybe we can get a petition going and say, we need an Archaeology After Dark podcast on the APN. <laughs> I know, that would be so cool. And I think they should host it. I do too. Right? If they hosted it as co-hosts <laughs> and then just brought on all the authors that Nancy's had from the three mm-hmm. books she's put together. And Megan contributed, I think, to the first one as well, she said. Yep. so. They would have so much to talk about. I think so. I think it's a, it's, it is sort of a frontier of archaeology a little bit because Mm -hmm. it's not been as researched as some other areas have been, but these, these ladies are really like getting in there and doing it and all the other people in their book. So I think it's really cool. Yeah. All right. Again, check that out. Links in the show notes and we'll have a link to episode 35 where we talked to Nancy and her co-editor April Newell about the archaeology of the night. The first one in this trilogy soon to become quad quadrilogy i don't know how you say that quattro she teased it so we'll see if it happens (laughs) all right with that we will see you guys next time bye thanks for listening to the archaeology show feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com find us on facebook instagram and twitter at arcpodnet Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. <laughs> 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.